We are going to finish Luke chapter 12 this morning. All right, we can clap on that. That's, we have been in Luke chapter 12 for a while. Um, usually, just to kind of let you know when there's not a lot of narrative, kind of storytelling going on, um, generally that means we're going to be there for a little bit longer and, and, and un- unpack the things that Jesus is teaching us and, and, and what he wants us to, uh, to see. Uh, last week, if you remember, we, we, did, we covered verses 49 and 53, and we saw from Jesus' teaching this, this warning, in a sense, to his followers that there will be division, uh, that he has not come to bring peace, but he has come to bring uh, division, and that division will be, as, as he gives the example, will, will, will hurt the most in, in families, in families where the gospel is believed, where the gospel is uh, uh, accepted and, and wanted and even shared, uh, and unfortunately it will cause great division in families. But we also saw it will also cause division even in churches, in culture definitely, but also in, in churches. And Jesus is pretty open about the fact when he tells us there will be division. Now, I've not come to give peace, but division. So the gospel divides. It's, it divides culture and churches and families. That's the reality in which we, we exist. Um, right now, <clears throat> our culture, they're, they're quite, our society is, is quite okay with us gathering this morning. A good case in point is we're able to rent this place every week. That tells us that in our community, they are okay with us coming together and gathering on Sunday mornings. But where the problem is, where the rub is, is when we begin to preach the gospel. Where we begin to take what we believe and bring it outside. You hear it in politicians that, I believe this, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but that does not affect the way that I make my decisions when it comes to uh, when it comes to my position. The rub happens is when we say what we believe actually applies, when it begins to apply in our life. Now, one of the dangers out of, I think, last week's message um, that I was thinking about this this week was um, when Christians, when we sense that division, when we sense that those problems and the, the, the not much peace and maybe even the marginalization in culture, we, we have a tendency to, to kind of move into this natural protective state. And, and that tendency leads us to separate and to isolate ourselves and, and only exist within our own little enclaves. And some of that is, is good, some of that is wise and, and, and understandable, but, but sometimes behind those, those created walls becomes, this, um, becomes almost this arrogance. This arrogance, we're behind these walls and, and they are not. That we, we know what's good, better than you. That we are better than you. That attitude can, can take place in, behind those, those walls, and certainly Christians are better off. We are better off by his 
grace, but we are not better. We're better off, but we are not better. As we saw last week, and again I want to show you again this week as an implication of our, of our text, is that the Bible over and over and over again tells us that we have, even though we are Christians and we are better off because we have received the grace and mercy of, of, of God, we have nothing to boast in but the cross. We have nothing to boast in but the cross of Christ. And if, and if that is at the center of our faith, this Savior, who we saw last week, his, his desire and his longing and his focus was to go straight to the cross, was for the redemption of his enemies and for the forgiveness of his enemies, then brothers and sisters, if we boast in nothing, but the cross only, we were an enemy. We were enemies, just like everyone. So the wall that we have, everybody beyond that is still an enemy. We once were an enemy. And if we were enemies, now brought into the family, brought into the body, what in the world could we ever boast about in this life that would make us better than anyone else? And that's why the gospel says, love your enemy. That's why it says, serve your enemies, give food and clothing to your enemies, because we were once enemies. So we have to be careful. I think that's the, I think there's a, there's a, a warning in the sense of we have to be careful in that, in that division, because we've seen this happen. We, we've, we've seen Christians uh, elevate themselves over this world, considering themselves better, and then uses the world as a way to justify themselves as being better than them. They place themselves up against them. We see people do that with even weaker Christians and younger Christians to make them look good and to feel better about themselves, to compare themselves so that they feel like they have won. Because if they can tear them down, they can tear weaker and younger Christians down, then they can build themselves us, build themselves up. The, the us versus them mentality can take root. But the reality is, is that if we believe the gospel, as we just kind of unpacked it just a little bit, if we believe the gospel, then the reality is, is there's no them. And, and I don't mean that in a sense that anybody can be a church member. I don't mean that. There's, there still is a division, right? We, there is a difference between those who believe Christ and those who reject Christ. But when it comes to our worth, in a sense, we are no better, just better off because of his grace. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are broken. Nobody gets to lean against the cross and say, you're too dirty. You're not good enough. We all kneel before the cross and we tell others there's plenty of room. And I think that's where we get to the text today. I think that's where we, we can get to the, the, the text today and it'll kind of unpack some of that for us and let us see some more of that, that temptation. Look at, look at chapter 12. 
Look at verse 54, so all the way toward the end. Verse 54. Here's the words what Jesus said. He said, He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the, the south wind blowing, you say, There will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see and to hear this holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. A couple things off the bat that I want you to take note of. First, Jesus turns his face from the disciples. There's attention from the disciples to the crowd. That's a that's a important, important statement there. Because like we have seen over and over again, is, is that there is a difference between the crowd and those who are following Jesus. This is the first time in 30 verses Jesus has turned to the crowd. And he's making the distinction, right? So note the distinction and how he's speaking and who he's speaking to compared to who he was speaking to before. Second thing I want you to take note of is, again, Jesus is not impressed with the crowds. And he never has been. Jesus is not impressed with the crowds. He doesn't make the wrong assumptions about them, that just because they are there and just because they are gathered, that they are all followers and that they're all true believers. One, um, one clear uh, way that we know that's true is look back to verse 13. You remember the guy who yelled out, Hey, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my inheritance. Jesus isn't impressed with the crowd. Not everyone who's been attracted to him has the best intentions and the right uh, motivation. Crowds do not mean success. Gospel transformation through faith and repentance is key. Right? There's, there's a key for understanding today's text. Number three. Again, this is not a very popular teaching of Jesus. These aren't the kind of sayings you're going to see on the Christian inspirational calendars. Hey, hypocrites, of course it's January 20th. You can read a calendar, but you can't read the present times. You're not going to see that in a Christian inspirational calendar. These are some of the hard words of Jesus. These are the hard words of Jesus. Number four, lastly, there's more than a meteorological lesson to be learned in this passage or sound legal advice. There's more here than meteorology and sound legal advice. There was something 
very theologically practical when it comes to the gospel and man's responsibility and man's response to Christ. And it's all dependent upon the mercy and grace of God. So look again. Look at verse 54 again with me. Let's unpack it together. He's, he says to the crowds, when, when, you see a, when you see the rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. So we do that. Right? You'd be out there sitting outside talking to your friends, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, clouds, rain's coming. Right? We, we know that. We do that. We can look in the sky, and, and we can see those things. And so it happens, and it rains. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Now, again, this isn't a, a, a lesson on meteorology, but, but Jesus is taking very well-known meteorological uh, events and he's using them to prove a very big point. He's actually talking about le- real meteorology things that they knew about. So if, if, if there was clouds coming from the west off the Mediterranean, there would be rain. And if there was a wind blowing from the south, from the Arabian desert, then it would get hot. Generally, the air coming off the desert is hot. Jesus calls it scorching hot. They could predict the weather. And if you stay in a place long enough, you, you begin to learn the environment and the weather patterns, and you can, you can predict the, the weather. But in light of their aptitude to discern the weather, Jesus looks at them in wonder at their inability to interpret what? This present time. What does that mean, this present time? What are, they, what are they missing? What is it that they are missing? Well, it's not a, a specific time, like, a, like 10 a.m. we gather, or an appointment at a, a doctor, but there is a general sense of a, of a season of time. It's a season that definitely has a, it has a definite start, and it will come to an eventual end. Now, with that explanation, I think you can, you can understand or ascertain what the present time that Jesus is speaking of. He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself and how in his coming, he has inaugurated and he has brought the kingdom of God. He has brought with him the, the kingdom of God, giving this clear evidence then of God's work through him that the kingdom is here. So what we have essentially happening here is Jesus staring at the crowd. And he's astonished by their complete and utter blindness that they are missing the pinnacle and culmination of all of history. They're missing the, the greatest of all realities standing right there in front of them. And he calls them hypocrites. Now we've heard that word before. Beginning of chapter 12, we heard hypocrite. There's kind of a bookend of hypocrisy in chapter 12. They could, they could come up with a rudimentary, accurate way to predict the next day's weather or the, hour, the weather in the next couple hours. But they were able and willingly to ignore the massive sign of a thunderstorm right in front of them. They're hypocrites because they gave this outward impression 
Listen to me. They, they gave an outward impression that they knew what was going on. They knew what was going on, so they were there. They were following Jesus. They gave an outward impression that they understood the world around them. That they understood who Jesus was. But in reality, Jesus, knowing the heart of, of, of this crowd, in fact, they had no clue about those important things that really mattered. They had no clue about the important things that were taking place right in front of them. The Son of God and the Kingdom of God right there. Here's, here's what they missed. Here's what they missed. Number one, they, they, they missed the sheer weight of the person of, who, of Jesus. They've missed the sheer weight of the person of Jesus. And we've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke, and we'll continue to see it throughout the Gospel of Luke and all the other Gospels, and even in the, the rest of the New Testament. We have no reason to believe that Jesus was some astonishing, handsome dude that everybody could pick out and say, man, he looks awesome. We heard this the other night, Mark Dever speaking at the G3 concert, uh, uh, conference. And, and he, said, he said that if there was a picture of all the disciples and Jesus in, in a room together, and forget Leonardo's painting of the, is it not Leonardo, Michelangelo's painting of the, of the uh, you know what I'm talking about, Last Supper. Boom. Thank you. That's on my notes. That's why I couldn't think of it. All right. Forget that. But if we had a photograph of just a group of dudes and Jesus is in that group, we probably would have a hard time picking out who Jesus is. It wasn't about what he looked like. But if we were part of that crowd, what would stand out? The character of Jesus. He wasn't like King Saul who had, was dapper, kind of like me. Or easy to look at like David. He was Jesus, a carpenter. We couldn't pick him out, but his, what overwhelmingly stood out was his character. No hint of pride, no lust, no hatred, no sinful anger or jealousy. He was completely blameless, and he spoke, and he preached, and he taught with an authority like no one else. They missed all of that. They missed the works of his life that were all on public for everybody to see. He wasn't hiding these things. He healed the sick by the hundreds. He raised the dead. We're kind of short-sighted here. We forget that. He's already raised two people from the dead from the Gospel of Luke. And we're only at, you know, finishing up chapter 12. All the miracles of nature that he's shown. The, the authority over creation, even exorcism, casting out demons like he's popping Tic Tacs. I mean, nothing to him. They've missed all of that. And Jesus even said it. Back in, ele uh, back, back in 1120, he said, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. The present age, the present time is here of the kingdom of God. If I'm doing this, it's here. They've missed the person of Jesus the sheer weight of the person of Jesus. Not only that, but they missed the testimony of history. They missed the whole point of the Old Testament. They missed the whole point of the Old Testament because repeatedly God sent his, his prophets, and he even gave the kings that were to be types of who Christ was going to be, except even much better. He sent them prophets. 
And these prophets were instruments of God's mercy to call that nation to repentance. They preached righteousness and judgment. And what happened over and over again? They rejected the message and even sometimes killing the prophets. And then divine judgment would come. It was a cycle over and over and over. And who was going to break this cycle? Well, not this generation either. They missed it. They couldn't see the relevance that of, of history to where they were in this present time of the kingdom of God. They did not show it in their repentance to follow Jesus. Not to mention the connect the dots of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And third, they missed the warning of the mounting aggression and rejection of Jesus. If, if you remember, I think it's back in chapter 11, at this point, the Pharisees were already fully engaged in trying to provoke Jesus in, uh, in, in some way to trap him. They were, they were already ready to get him. The aggression is already mounting to grow. The aggression and rejection was mounting to grow, and it would culminate to a rejection on the cross. The signs were there, but the failure to understand, interpret, see, and adapt, listen, the failure to see, interpret, and to adapt was not a problem of knowledge. It's not a problem of we did not know. The problem was a failure of the will. The problem was a failure of the will. They didn't want to see. So my question then is, how are these people, or how does humanity then miss this? How, do they, how are they unable to interpret the present time? Well, thankfully we have the Bible to help us with that. And, and the Apostle Paul helps us in Romans chapter 1. So turn to Romans chapter 1, because I want you to see these texts. I know you know them, most of you probably know these texts pretty well. But turn to Romans chapter 1, and I want you to, I want you to see for your, for your own eyes how, how humanity misses these signs by their will, by their own will. As you, as you turn there, by the way, this is a, Romans chapter 1 is just another great explanation of, of why there will be division. Of, of why there will be a division between Christians and non-Christians. Because when Jesus comes into this uh, broken world to reconcile it, he, he comes to these to individual human hearts, and he basically shows them, hey man, the, the way you are, are living is, is, is wrong, and what you are living for is wrong. And what Romans 1 tells us is, I don't care, leave me alone. Look at Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
So here's Paul describing for us the, the plight of humanity. This is, this is where the, the failure of man exists and why we deserve the wrath of God for all the ungodliness and all the unrighteousness of men. And here's what we do with our wills. We, we suppress the truth. We see it. It's like seeing the weather. We see the weather and we suppress it. We see the truth and we suppress the truth in our hearts. This is what humanity does. We, re, we refuse to see what's on the horizon. The existence of an all-powerful, sovereign, creator God is revealed throughout the universe. And if for one moment you could quiet yourself, you could see all the universe screaming the glory of God. And yet we suppress that. We suppress that truth. And, and so since there are signs of, 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 all, of all of humanity are, are guilty and without excuse for not interpreting the times. Look at verse 21, Romans 1. It says, for although they knew God, which means they could see and perceive God in creation, here's the failure, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and foolish their hearts were darkened. So what is the effect of suppressing the truth? The effect of suppressing the truth is becoming futile in our thinking. Futile, mean, futile means toiling, mean, meaning you're stuck. Kenny was stuck a couple weeks ago and couldn't get his truck out. Couldn't get our trailer to church, right? And it was futile for him to keep hitting the gas on his truck because it would just get worse and worse. It, is, it makes our minds futile, meaning it's, there, it becomes useless. And it becomes darkened, foolish, our hearts. We are blind because of the nature of sin. And what's deeper here is that humanity, by their will, listen, by their will, chooses to ignore God. Chooses to to dishonor God, but instead chooses darkness. And when they choose darkness, they're choosing futility, and they're choosing sin. And we only choose those because by nature we are sinners. We want those things. And we choose those things, and we choose sin because we want those things more than we want to acknowledge God more than we want to honor God, more than we want to thank God and please God, and then that is what dishonors Him. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to be not, I'm sorry, to do what ought not to be done. Down to verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, again, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Are we really surprised by the insanity of today? 
when you let passage like this, passages like this settle in our hearts, and this, once again, is not for us to be arrogant, but to really think about where humanity exists and where we once were, which we're still growing out of, being sanctified. How could we be surprised? I mean, that now even today, people are celebrating abortions. They have birthday parties for aborted babies. It's a celebrating, I killed my baby. Homosexuality is openly celebrated. Pornography on television and on Netflix and Amazon is welcome. What's even more baffling, I mean, just the, the casting off of any kind of biological, scientific reality of, of sexuality. Sex, what gender you are. I don't know if I said that right. I know you guys got kind of a thing you say. <laughs> don't explain that. But we've cast it off. If anything, that it's child abuse to say that your son who was born is a boy. Things, time, and people have not changed. Yes, I can get on my phone and I can show you what the weather is going to be in 15 days. That's as far as AccuWeather will go. I can show you those things. You can show me those things. We've, we've known since Monday that today was going to be like it was today, right? Weather? I mean, almost exactly. We saw the Arctic cold air move down from Canada. And by the way, the Canadians can keep that stuff, right? Although it's, it does kill bugs and helps reset things. It's good. We can do all these things. But people, we has not changed. Humanity has not changed. Jesus is still right in this passage. We plan our lives around the weather, but humanity, left alone in our natural state, still ignores the signs of the present age. Now, the signs of the present age. I'm not talking about, we're talking about the kingdom of God. So what is that today? Well, it's not black helicopters, it's not building temples, and it's not blood moons. The signs of the, the present age that God has given the world since the ascension of Christ, what the apostles established is the church. Brothers and sisters, you are a sign of the present age. Your life transformed by grace is a sign of the present age of the work of the God. The church. It's why we as a church, we, we hold it in such high esteem. And why membership and covenant together is vitally important. We may be tempted to think that we're small. And we are. We're small and significant in number. But can you consider Ephesians 3? And the eternal perspective that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives to small churches like us. Listen to this. To me, though I am very the least of all saints... This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may be made known 
to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. And this was according to what? The eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was given to us. We are the, 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 the show, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to us. And not just to the other little peons in Statesboro, right? But to who? To the rulers and the authorities. That God's kingdom is what exists forever and ever. And it was according to what? Before the world began. God's eternal purposes to use us. Humanity is utterly and completely responsible before God for not seeing what God has clearly put inside, put in front of them. Creation and the church. There are signs. The signs of the kingdom of God are here. They're here. Now, Jesus takes this text, though, missing the signs and the condition of man and by our wills, we just don't want to see the truth. We'd rather just look at the weather, be amazed by those things. And he applies it for us. Because the question, I think, kind of comes back then, then what do we do? All right, what, what, what then are we to do if we're completely responsible for God, but we can't see the, see, see the signs because we refuse to see the signs by my own very will and by my nature, I refuse to see these things, then where, there, where is there any hope? Look at verse 57. It's a hard hope, but it's there. He says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And, and here's what I think Jesus is telling those who can hear and those who can see, judge for yourselves now what is right. If you have, what well, we, we sometimes say, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, right? That's what I think Jesus is saying here. That if you can see these things and you can he see, hear these things, then by common sense, Settle with your accuser. That's in the text, right? I was looking, look again at the text. Verse 58. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, right? This is a, this is a proverbial situation that he's making up for us to see here to explain what he wants us to, how we respond. Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. And I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There's proverbial wisdom, yes, in this passage, that common sense tells us that you are to make peace with your accuser. You should make peace with your accuser if you know you're guilty and you're going to face these kind of consequences. Right? There's, there's, there's proverbial wisdom there. In fact, Paul even tags in some of that with... Uh, in 1 Corinthians, because a bunch of immature Christians were suing one another. And the same idea is, is, is settle it before you go to the judge. Because if you go to the judge, you have no hope. You are guilty and you will pay for the rest of your life. And if there's a chance that the judge was going to decide in your opponent's favor, and these consequences were going to be as bad as they were going to be, you better take now before disaster comes. 
And he's, in a sense, pleading with those with good sensibilities and common sense and those who can hear, right, and see what's going on. And that is to settle, to settle. That's the point. If you have a heart of humility, if you've been given this heart of humility to see and to hear the present time, what's coming, then to, be, then to seek and to be reconciled before it's too late. To show some common sense by being reconciled to God now. Because again, just like that, that present time has a season that has a beginning and an end, so does our lives. It's only a season. In fact, James calls it a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. This shows us that humanity is completely and utterly guilty before the judge. We have nothing that we have no case. We have no argument. And even in this matter, we have no advocate that will stand before us if we go up there and try to plead it ourselves. But if we lean upon and trust in the grace of God and the work of Christ and put our faith in that, then there is an advocate that stood for you on the cross and bore your guilt. And he paid the very last penny. He paid the very last penny. Romans 1 showed us we're guilty. And the only hope we have is to plead for the mercy and grace of God. To plead for the mercy and grace of God. There's eternal judgment otherwise. If your debt has not been settled by the grace of God through the work of Christ. That is such the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That is such good news that we do not have to face that judge. Or we would have nothing to stand on. But if I could turn back to Romans 1 again, you don't have to turn there. Just hear me out. There's little verses that I kind of skipped there. I was also told us a little bit about how the wrath of God is being poured out even now. And, and I say this because uh, judgment is just not an eternity, but it is here now. There's God's wrath being poured out even now, three times. Three times it says that God has given them over. Well, who did God give them over to? Did he give them over to Satan? No. No. He gives them over to themselves. What's worse than giving you over to Satan is giving him over to yourself. Because then there's no restraint. There's, there's no restraint. And we are given over into our, all of our desires, in all of our passions, and in our debased minds. This is what's sad. And this is where, brothers and sisters, we should weep for this sick culture. This is where we should weep because God's wrath is being poured out on them as we speak. Giving themselves over. There's no happiness there. There's no joy there. There's only arrogance. 
and darkness and futility that will lead to an eventual standing form of judge. When God no longer restrains the evil in man's heart, it inevitably destroys them. And I think the point here again is those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear God's grace and to see God's mercy and to judge for yourself what is right but to settle. And the only settling is, is clinging to grace, clinging to Christ and the cross. And as Christians, we just welcome them. There's plenty of room. No matter what, there's plenty of room. For such was I. So let me close this out quickly for us. There's some implications for us. What do we do with this? Number one, fight for gospel humility in your life every day. Fight for gospel humility every day. Do you remember the day, the night, the week, the moment that like a light turning on in the darkness, you realized it was you and your own sin not just the bad things that you've done and the lies that you've told and the anger that you've had and the hateful things that you said, but there was a, a real realization of the hatred and evil that was deep in your heart. And now all of that was right in front of your face. You felt unclean. And you knew you couldn't escape from that reality. And if not from it, turn from it, if nothing would come, if there would be no help or rescue, death was inevitable. And yet at the same time, the overwhelming truth of the gospel, despite the guilt before a holy and righteous God, we saw that he was also gracious and loving and he provided relief and rescue and refuge in Jesus Christ. In, in that moment of clarity, you ran to the arms of the living God. Do you, do you remember that? That's where humility that we fight for every day in this life, we, it all, it's where it stems out of. That's where it comes out of. And it's in that humility that we are quick to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness, even if it is an enemy. Second, cultivate thankfulness and gratitude. That's Romans 1, right? <laughs> if you've received mercy, and you've received grace, then honoring and gratitude and thankfulness is, the, is the, the fruit of that. It's the fruit that we bear in, in this life. We all have so much to be thankful for. The material blessings and the earthly joys, I still hear them when I preach. But make no mistake, those are gifts from God. But if you are in Christ, but cultivate a thankfulness that's deeper than the things that God has given you to you in this life. Be grateful and have gratitude to God for your salvation. Again, humility. For God to send his own son to pay the debt you could never pay. He paid it in full with his life. 
And it was by His grace that He has given us the eyes and the heart to see and to judge for ourselves what is right and which led us to plead with Him for forgiveness. And that response was His call all along, the call to grace and to life and joy and inheritance and righteousness and Himself. We get Him. Isn't that worth a lifetime of gratitude and thanksgiving? Come praise and glorify. Third, if you, if you see the signs of the times, then there's only so much time, then we are to take seriously that time and be about the kingdom of God. If, if this is a season, our lives are a season, and this present kingdom is a season until Christ returns, so we can even go back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, then there is a serious call for all of us to be about the kingdom, to share the gospel, to tell, to warn, to pray, to give, to lead, to find others. Because as Jesus has come, if he has come to bring fire on the earth, then that implication is that we, those who know that fire is coming, is to share the gospel so that others too would be reconciled to God before it's too late. Lastly, and this is real quick, lastly, if you're not a Christian, the call is clear. Do not delay. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. If there is a stirring today, if there is a stirring today, these, these things of sin against God and then the mercy and grace of God that is in Christ, then consider what Jesus is saying to you and what he has said to all of us to settle with him to repent, and to believe. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, thank you for your kindness in these moments. We pray that you would lead us in how we are to respond, how we are to receive this message, and whether it was through humility or maybe it's gratitude or, or sharing the gospel or salvation, Lord, whatever it may be, would you lead us as we respond as a, as a church and let these things just marinate in our hearts this morning. Thank you for revealing to us and showing us the present reality and present time. Thank you, O oh Lord, that there is still time and that may, we may be a people that is about being faithful to the message and to the work that you have done in us. In Jesus' name, amen.